independent media is more important than ever. We don't have a corporate network behind us, and we also don't have big green foundation grants. So we really do need you, and we are actively calling in your direct support so that we can continue exploring many of these topics and perspectives, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you're enjoying our show, please make sure you're subscribed and join us on Patreon today, starting at a tip of just $3 at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Every little bit helps and really adds up. And that is the power in community. So thank you so much for however you're able to support our work. Green Dreamer is supported by our listener patrons. To support the show starting at just $1 per month and access extended content and potentially join our Green Dreamer network as well, you can head to greendreamer.com support to learn more. When you wipe out hundreds of millions of beavers, you know, you, you cause all of those beaver dams to break down and all of those ponds and wetlands drain. And, you know, North America, which, which had once been this lush, wet, green-blue place, uh, really desertified. That was Ben Goldfarb, an independent environmental journalist and the award-winning author of Eager, The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter. Stay tuned as we're about to explore how we've wiped out 99% of our beavers in North America, the vital role that beavers play in enriching wild landscapes and building our collective resilience against climate change, why our modern ideas of what healthy ecosystems look like may have been wrong, and more. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. Some people are just drawn drawn to nature for whatever reason. I was fortunate to have parents who made hiking and, and camping and getting outdoors a, a priority. And, you know, certainly I, I grew up in, in New York and we spent a lot of time in, in the Adirondacks in upstate New York. And, you know, and that's a that's a very beavery part of the country, actually. So we were, you know, always always around beavers as a kid. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, it was, it was a number of years ago, I was, I was working as a as an environmental journalist covering conservation, mostly living in uh, in Seattle. And I, I happened to see this this flyer for a, a beaver workshop, and I you know I had no idea what a beaver workshop entailed, but you know I knew that I I liked beavers and that I had to check it out. So I went to this beaver workshop, and and there there were just you know dozens of of scientists and land managers and fisheries biologists talking about you know kind of the world changing powers of this this single rodent, you know, and I, I just it was that that workshop that little conference that basically showed me that beavers are not just some fun, furry little mammal. They're actually, you know, they're the some of the primary movers and shakers of, of North American landscape. So it was that it was that conference and meeting some key people there that, that got me it took me from being kind of a, you know, okay, I like I you know, I like I like beavers, like like I like all wildlife, to, you know, wait a second, I am a true beaver believer and <laughs> that's a bigger story that needs to get told. I love that. Well, in an interview with National Geographic, you mentioned that in North America, when the first white traders and trappers arrived, there were as many as 400 million beavers, and by 1900, there were perhaps 100,000. 
So we wiped out over 99% of our beavers, which also means that the role they play within our ecosystems must also have been compromised. So why exactly are beavers considered keystone species and what do they do to support the health of various landscapes? Yeah, so of course beavers beavers create dams and those those dams form ponds and wetlands, right? That's kind of the classic the classic beaver behavior. And you know, we know that in, in North America, uh, especially in the American West, which is a, a pretty arid place, water is life, right? You know, I think that in, in the American West, which is where I live in, in eastern Washington, wetlands cover about 2% of the total land area and support around 80% of the di- of the biodiversity. Mm. So it's just hugely disproportionately important for sustaining life on this continent. And of course, any animal that's capable of creating and maintaining those ponds and wetlands is is remarkably crucial uh, and beavers beavers perform that function really well so you know juvenile trout and salmon rely on beaver ponds and wetlands as as rearing grounds when you know when they're small baby fish they you know they need to grow up in these these kind of complex pond and wetland ecosystems amphibians breed in beaver ponds you know all kinds of waterfowl use beaver areas as as foraging and nesting grounds uh, you know, moose love to cool off in, in beaver ponds and eat the aquatic vegetation. It's you know, it's almost hard to name an animal that doesn't benefit in some way from these these amazing keystone species. So of course, when you when you wipe out hundreds of millions of beavers, you know, you you cause all of those beaver dams to break down and all of those ponds and wetlands drain. And you know, North America, which which had once been this lush, wet, green, blue place. Uh, really desertified in a big way. I think that a lot of the a lot of the places that we think of as as dry today, you know, were historically much much wetter and and marshier uh, in in many cases. So there's no question that the, that the the trapping out of hundreds of millions of beavers was this enormous environmental catastrophe. Uh, you know, in some ways on a on a par with the deforestation of New England or the you know the busting of the Midwestern prairie for agriculture or gold mining in California, it was, you know, we don't think about fur trapping as, as one of the forces that changed environmental history, but there's, there's no question it was. Now, why is it that beavers are inherently driven to build these dams to begin with? I assume this isn't to intentionally support all the life that also benefit from it, but why do they do this? Yeah, so a, a beaver on land, uh, as one biologist put it to me, is a, a fat, slow, smelly meat package. Basically, they're kind of these, you know, these clumsy, waddling rodents that get eaten by, you know, wolves, cougars, bears, coyotes, any kind of large carnivore. A beaver's a, a pretty good, a pretty good meal. So by by expanding and deepening these these pockets of water, they're basically creating their own habitat. Right? They're really powerful, agile swimmers. They're fantastic uh, in in the water and and uh, much more vulnerable on land. So if by by creating a pond and then you know widening that pond, you can say, hey, you know, instead of having to walk over land to get to that good-looking aspen tree over there, you know, I can swim up to it instead and then and then float it back down the pond uh, to my you know my dam or lodge. So they're really yeah they're really enhancing their own sense of security and their own habitat. But again, because because these watery environments are so critical for life. They're also just incidentally supporting lots of other other creatures as well. And was their dramatic decline largely attributed to the fur trade, or what were some other reasons for this decline in their population? Yeah, the, the fur trade was was far and away the the most the most important factor. 
that wipes them out. And you, you know, in some in some places like Yellowstone National Park, another another factor was actually the destruction of, of predators like wolves. What happens when you you know when you get wolves wiped out is that is that elk and deer and other other browsers and grazers, you know, their populations explode and they end up eating a lot of that that streamside willow and aspen and cottonwood that beavers need. So in Yellowstone, the story was actually you know beavers beavers disappeared or nearly disappeared because wolves were wiped out and there was this this elk overpopulation. But by and large, the the, the dominant factor in the destruction of beavers was was absolutely the, the fur trade. And that was mostly for hats. You know, beavers beavers have sort of this layer of under fur called the, the beaver wool, as the trappers called it. And those little under hairs have little hooks or barbs at the end, which makes them lock together like Velcro, which made this really, you know, durable, malleable, waterproof hat making material felt that made these hats that were that were all the rage in, in Europe. So it was it was really the hat industry more than anything else that drove the, the initial collapse of beavers. Well, from 400 million beavers to 100,000, it sounds like we made a lot of hats from trapping them. It's yeah. kind of hard to conceptualize. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and I mean, all of that, all of that hat making and, and fur trapping was, was also really a, you know, a hugely important driver of, of American history in a lot of ways, too. You know, a lot of, a lot of the historical events that, you know, that kind of shaped post-colonial uh, North America were, were motivated by the beaver trade. So, you know, for example, the American Revolution, one of the, the British decisions that angered the colonists and eventually incited them to revolt was actually denying colonists access to trapping grounds, beaver trapping grounds, west of the Appalachian Mountains. Uh, so there's a, a beaver connection in the American Revolution. The Louisiana Purchase was partly motivated by Jefferson's desire to secure new new trapping lands, and it was those it was those white fur trappers and traders who spread smallpox and many of the other diseases that that uh, nearly wiped out many Native American tribes. The story of the beaver trade is really the story of, of post-colonial America in you know all of its sort of grandiosity and, and tragedy. How about climate change? Because beavers helped maintain our wetlands, which we recently learned the importance of from wetland ecologist Max Finlayson, to what extent do you think the stark decline in our beaver population, which led to more erosion and desertification, contributed directly or indirectly to our climate crisis today? Yeah, that's a that's a really a really interesting question. I mean, there's, there's no there's no doubt that losing beavers made our, our landscapes less resilient in the face of drought, and that's you know it's. Climate change is really one of the biggest reasons that beavers are, are kind of hot right now. You know, they're having this moment all over all over North America. And I think a lot, a lot of that is, is because of climate-induced drought. You know, we're, we're recognizing that, that our, our water resources are really vulnerable. And, you know, we're losing snowpack in, a, you know, a lot, of, a lot of our western mountain ranges like the Cascades and the Sierras. And, you know, we're recognizing that, hey, here's this animal that can potentially build thousands of little reservoirs for us up in the, the high country and basically keep water on the landscape longer into the, you know, into the, the hot, the hot and dry season in, in summer and, and early fall. You know, so there's all kinds of great research being done right now about the role of beavers in, in maintaining stream flows throughout the year and, and keeping stream flows cold as well. That's, that's really important too, is, you know, as the climate warms, our, our streams and rivers are getting hotter and hotter which is really stressing out uh, salmon, especially in the, the American West. We actually need, we need beavers basically keeping those waters cold. Uh, so there's lots of, yeah, there are, there are lots of interesting beaver 
climate connections, and that it's absolutely one of the reasons that that there's there is this kind of beaver moment happening right now, where lots of landowners and and public land agencies and uh, municipalities are increasingly interested in beavers, in large part due to this this climate connection that you alluded to. Definitely, I feel like conversations to do with climate mitigation largely have to do with how human activity is. Driving our carbon emissions and driving climate change, but I feel like we're not talking as much about how we've already degraded our ecosystems and landscapes, and how we've already, for example, wiped out a, a lot of our wildlife and what role they had in building resilient ecosystems that could have helped us to regulate our climate better as well. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think right. I think I think that you know the beavers are part of this. You know this this whole class or group of of keystone species like like bison, of course, is another classic example. You know animals that actually would have shaped the physical landscape in ways that made it more resilient and, and more capable of, of of holding carbon too. You know that's, that's another really fantastic thing that beavers do, right? Is is you know they're slowing down these these river and stream flows and they're causing all of this organic matter, this carbon rich organic matter, to basically settle out. They end up trapping huge amounts of of carbon in these layers of wetland sediment that are being deposited in their 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 compounds or complexes. Uh, so, yeah, absolutely, beavers have a critical a critical climate adaptation role to play in that they're keeping water on our landscapes, but they're also they also have a, a mitigation role to play in that they're they're sequestering a whole lot of carbon potentially mm-hmm. uh, a lot of the the wetlands they're forming. Do you think part of the issue is that it may be easier to incrementally decrease our environmental impact from human activity as opposed to restoring wild spaces, which may mean that we have to give up some of what we've taken for ourselves. Yeah, I think I think there's definitely truth to that. You know, I think that's one of the challenges of beavers is that you know beavers and humans we like the same habitat, right? We we both we both like these broad, fertile floodplains. We like you know, low gradient stream corridors. That's where we build our, our roads and our railroad tracks and our, our towns and our, our farms. Um, you know, we, we basically put down our civilization smack on top of what was formerly beaver habitat. You know, and as, as these animals return to our landscapes, you know, beavers have made this really wonderful comeback where they've bounced back from 100,000 animals or so to, you know, maybe 15 million in North America. Mm-hmm. As, they've, as they've returned, you know, they've come into conflict in many places with the human infrastructure that we laid down in their absence. So if we're, if we're going to reap the full benefits of beavers, you know, if we're going to let them create this wonderful fish and wildlife habitat, store our water for us, improve our water quality, it's another thing they, they do really well, sequester carbon, build soil. If we want them to do all of these things, you know, we have to learn to give up something, you know, to, to live alongside these, these creatures and yeah, maybe maybe return some spaces to to the beavers and to other to other wildlife as well. And you know, unfortunately that's that's happening around the country. There are so many wonderful examples now of, of communities learning to live with beavers in some pretty urban spaces and reaping wonderful benefits as a result of that. As part of the synopsis of your notable book about beavers called Eager, you say that our modern idea of what a healthy landscape looks like and how it functions has been wrong. Can you expand on this idea for us and shed light on where we went wrong with our idea? 
you know, it's in some cases, it's kind of the classic shifting baseline syndrome, right? Where each each successive generation of humans doesn't quite recognize how the land has changed and degraded because they weren't here to see it when it was really good, you know? And I think that's what happened. That's what happened with beavers is, is this wave of fur trappers spread west across North America, wiping out beavers in every single ecosystem they encountered. And by the time, you know, early naturalists and, and ecologists and and settlers showed up, you know, they were they were moving into this landscape that had that had been without beavers for many decades, you know, and then in the 20th century, you've got, you know, you've got river scientists sort of developing models of what, of how rivers and streams should look and function, but they're doing that, you know, in kind of a post-beaver context, right? So it's, I think that, you know, we, we internalized this notion of a stream as this, you know, straight, linear, single channel, relatively simple, free-flowing, fast-moving, you know, gravel-bottomed corridor, essentially. But that wasn't, that, that's not what a beaver ecosystem looks like, right? Beavers, you know, create these very messy pond and wetland complexes where there's, you know, there's dead and dying trees all over the place, and there are, you know, multiple channels, and there's water flowing everywhere. The sediment is really thick and, and kind of mucky. You know, it's not, it's not like a nice, tidy, orderly place where you'd necessarily want to go fly fishing, you know? So I, I think I think that's the issue is that we you know we internalized these very neat streams as natural when in fact a, a, you know really a healthy beaver rich ecosystem is considerably more chaotic. Mm. I think I think that's that's really the crux of the issue is that yeah we, our just our just historical conception of what a stream should look like is in many ways inaccurate and in many cases inaccurate because we've excluded beavers from our, our historical ecological narrative. Wow, that's that's definitely perspective shifting. I feel like we definitely have a very dominant idea of what a river and a stream and our waterways should look like, but we have these ideas because the first naturalists that went to study them were again post the beaver era. So what they thought were natural to that ecosystem was in fact not anymore. Yeah, exactly. You know, and we also, of course, we also have a vested interest in not accepting beavers in that, you know, we've, you know, we tend to build in, on floodplains, right? That's where, we, that's where we put all of our, you know, all of our, all of our infrastructure and our, our homes is, you know, is, is on these floodplains, which historically, you know, were, were seasonally underwater, essentially. And, you know, and that's what beavers do so well is they, you know, they build dams, they, they raise water, they spread water out, they basically inundate these, these, floodplain areas along along stream and river corridors and that's you know that's a really important function right you need you know by, I mean, by pushing by pushing water out onto the floodplain you know you're creating great fish spawning and rearing habitat for many fish species you know you're also recharging water tables right that that water basically sinks into the the soil on the floodplain and and raises that water table and and recharges those aquifers so that you know that getting Reconnecting rivers and floodplains is, is a really critical ecological function, and beavers perform that function really well. But because we've colonized the floodplains, you know, we don't want beavers doing that in in many cases. So I think that's the other, the other, the two issues are that we've conceptualized, we've we've wrongly conceptualized our aquatic ecosystems, and we've also colonized the very floodplains that beavers need to occupy. So mm. another big obstacle for beaver restoration. 
The fact that beavers are capable of transforming landscapes while actually bettering the health of that habitat goes to show that external influences that reshape landscapes can actually be beneficial. So seeing as how our work ethic and ability to also architect and change nature are quite similar, why is it that beavers are able to reshape the environment and build dams that also improve the health of our lands and waterways, whereas the ways that we transform ecosystems and build dams almost always lead to degradation? Yeah, that's a that's such a good question. And you know, I think that the biggest issue, the most obvious issue, is is just the permeability of human dams versus beaver dams, right? I mean, a human, you know, humans were create we're creating structures like you know the the Bonneville Dam or you know or the the, the Hoover Dam or you know the Glen Canyon Dam. These these gigantic, solid, monolithic, towering walls that you know in many cases were built without without adequate fish passage structures, like the case of the, the, you know, the Grand Coulee Dam near me in, in eastern Washington, uh, you know, which is completely impassable for, for salmon. So that's, the, that's, I mean, our dams, you know, have the unfortunate function of basically creating these, you know, these, these rivers that, uh, you know, that are no longer functional migratory corridors for mobile fish species like salmon, mm. whereas, whereas beaver dams you know, are, are very, are very permeable to fish. You know, they're, they're much lower, of course, they frequently get overtopped by the streams. Streams tend to flow around beaver dams and fish, you know, fish migrate during times of high flow when water is, you know, most likely to be moving over or around dams. So, you know, I mean, there've been, there've been studies finding individual salmon passing more than 200 dams on their way to spawn. So, you know, clearly beaver dams are not, they're not, they're certainly not permanent fish passage barriers in the in the way that 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 human dams are. So I think that's I think that's kind of the, the most critical difference between between our, our two species dam buildings. But it's also you know it's also a matter of it's a matter of scale. You know we we tend to build these you know these enormous sort of centralized water delivery infrastructure systems. You know where you've got something like the Colorado River. You know these. You've got, you know, Lake Lake Mead and the Glen Canyon Dam, you know, these two gigantic slurpees that, you know, we're basically sticking a bunch of straws into all over the American West. And beavers, by contrast, you know, build this kind of this much more decentralized, dispersed, wide ranging architecture. So, it's, you know, so so in some ways, human dams are, are these, you know, these these gigantic national scale water delivery systems. And, you know, and beavers are much smaller and more local and dispersed and numerous. It's sort of like a, you know, a small and local is beautiful thing where, you know, where, where uh, beavers are just, you know, the impact of each individual dam is much smaller. But there are, you know, there are, there are, are many more of them. So the impact is somewhat dispersed. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's a sort of a decentralized water delivery system rather than a centralized one. Yeah. It's quite profound to envision all the dams that we've built around the world for our freshwater and how all of that is absent of life. And to think about how if all of these dams were to exist as they should have been, just freshwater, flowing freshwater, you know, thinking about all the life that that could be supporting. No doubt about it. I mean, it's, you know, I'm always astounded. You know, every, I mean, every, it seems like every time I visit a beaver complex, you know, there's some some kind of new biological interaction to to observe there you know it, i mean i was just i was last so last month i was i was in uh, england for for a week or so and, and there beavers have been reintroduced 
after being absent for many hundreds of years. You know, beavers were completely wiped out of the UK uh, and have only recently returned. And there, what was you know what was really incredible, being at that 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 beaver complex, one of the first beaver complexes in in the UK for 400 years, was just seeing you know all of the emergent aquatic insects coming off the pond the beavers had created, and seeing all of the bats that had shown up to just you know, devour those those insects. It was just this amazing you know bat feeding buffet essentially. And that's you know that's not I mean that beaver bat connection you know that's not something that you necessarily I've never seen, you know, a peer-reviewed study documenting that connection. But when you visit beaver ponds, you know, the, the benefits for bats are just unmistakable. You know, they're, they're, they're always out there. So that's, yeah, I mean, that's the, that's the sort of, you know, the sort of ecological interaction that beaver, beaver ponds foster. And, you know, you're right that, uh, you know, these giant human-built reservoirs are, are, you know, biologically deserts by, con- by comparison. Mm. And it's also counterintuitive to think about how when we build our dams of fresh water, we then have to artificially filter our fresh water of pollutants. But when water is allowed to flow, you know, through the rocks, through the sediments, that process itself also filters the water. So I don't know, (laughs) questionable what we're doing. But I guess on this note, do you see a possibility in which we can decentralize our waterways again? And what would that look like in practice? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. It's, I mean, it's not, you know, look, certainly, at least it, I think, you know, in our, in our lifetimes, I mean, I think that we're, you know, we're sort of living with what, with what we have in a, in a, a big way. It's, you know, it's hard, it's hard to imagine, um, you know, Phoenix and Las Vegas and, you know, and all of these, all of these giant Western cities becoming any less dependent on, you know, the big Colorado River reservoirs. So, you know, at a, at a, at a large scale, I think that, you know, we're, we're basically living with the infrastructure that we've got. But at the same time, you know, I do, I mean, I see all of these places, dozens and dozens and dozens of places around the American West, especially where, you know, beavers are becoming part of the, the local water solution, you know, and, and that's especially in, you know, places with, with dry land or non-irrigated agriculture, farming and ranching, where lots of, lots of ranchers are recognizing that, hey, you know, wait a second, these animals, these beavers, um, you know, which we've historically killed and treated as, as nuisance species, essentially, um, you know, they're actually, they're creating these fantastic watering holes, essentially, for, for livestock. You know, they're spreading water out, they're raising water tables, they're irrigating floodplains, they're providing these fantastic, you know, they're, I mean, they're basically growing grass for us, you know, which we, which we can then graze our, our cattle on. Mm. You know, they're, they're providing these wonderful sort of sub-irrigation benefits. So I think that's, you know, that's hugely significant, it's even if, you know, even if our, you know, I mean, beavers are, beavers are not going to solve all of our, our water delivery issues, obviously, you know, they're, they're, the solution doesn't, doesn't scale to the level of Phoenix. But, you know, for, for the many thousands and thousands of farmers and ranchers, you know, scattered around the West, you know, many of whom are, are farming and ranching, you know, up valley, sort of, you know, above, above the big reservoirs, then beavers can be incredibly valuable and are, all, are already demonstrating their value. You know, I think that like the, so... You know, the phrase the phrase that I, I heard recently that I, I, I like a lot is, you know, okay, beavers are not they're not a, a silver bullet, obviously. They're not going to, you know, save us from all of the, you know, the the climate and, and drought problems that we, we experience in North America, but you know, they're one of the pellets in a, a spray of silver buckshot, right? They're you know, they're one of their one solution uh, within a, a, a broader toolbox of water solutions that we need to be taking seriously. 
Aside from beavers, I know you're currently doing research on road ecology and how our network of roads have affected our wildlife and environment at large. What have you discovered so far from this big picture analysis? The short answer is, is you know, come come talk to me in a couple of years when, the, when that book is, you know, nearer nearer completion. But um, you know, I, I mean, I think that I was drawn to the the topic of of road ecology and and roads in general for the same reasons that I was drawn to beavers in part, which is that you know, to me. The beaver story is really, it's about, it's about the hidden changes, the hidden ecological changes that have transformed North America. You know, it's about these rodents that were hugely responsible for shaping the landscape that we occupy. And the destruction of those rodents was also hugely consequential in reshaping that landscape. And now, you know, now the beavers are coming back and that's having, you know, a, a new suite of impacts. But again, you know, I think that, that the ways in which beavers and then the fur trade shaped our continent are largely invisible to us, right? If you ask, if you ask the average person, you know, hey, what are the major forces that transformed North America historically? You know, I don't think the, I don't think the average person would name beavers or, or fur trapping as, as a really significant factor. Um, now we will. <laughs> hopefully. Um, you know, and I, think, I think that in a lot of ways, roads are similar in that, you know, they're so, they're such a, a ubiquitous, constant part of our lives that they're that they're functionally invisible to us you know we don't we don't really think about the roads that we drive on because we use them every single day mm-hmm. but if you're you know but if you're a, a grizzly bear or a salamander or uh you know or or a wolverine or, or you know any number one of any number of species you know roads are are really the most profound force shaping where you move and how you move and when you can move, you know, roads are, are they've, they've disrupted and changed the lives of basically every species in the world, mm-hmm. you know, in ways that we don't always fully recognize. So, so that's why I like the, the, the road topic is it, is it, it's another opportunity to sort of, you know, reveal the, the hidden impacts of a, of a, you know, a force uh, that has shaped what, what our, our landscapes look like. Mm-hmm. I saw a picture the other day. It was of a deer crossing a road, and the caption read, "Is this really a deer crossing a road, or is the road crossing the forest?" So I feel like that just really illustrates the point that you're making here, and that really sparked a powerful perspective shift for me. Yeah, that's, I, I haven't seen that picture, but I, I I love that caption, and yes, it's you know it's completely true, and that's you know it's also I mean just like beavers, just just as we you know, tend, tend to occupy the, the floodplains and stream corridors that beavers historically inhabited, you know, the, the exact same, is, the, the same thing is true of roads, right? I mean, you know, we tend to put our roads in the places where construction is easiest, which is, you know, those, those low-lying, flat river valleys, valley bottoms, that also turn out to be the most, you know, biologically important and productive habitats on the entire landscape, right? We've, you know, we've, we've built our infrastructure in exactly the places that that uh, that wildlife needs. Mm. So, yeah, I think that you know, in that in that way too, the beaver story and the road story share a lot. Absolutely. Well, although our modern, linear, and narrow-minded idea of development is definitely worth questioning, in my opinion, it doesn't seem like we're going to slow that down or stop anytime soon. So, how do you think we can take our understanding of road ecology and this beaver story into consideration as we move forward? to be able to perhaps be more like beavers and transform the land, but in ways that allow us to thrive alongside of wildlife. 
Yeah, that's such, a, that's such a good a good question. I mean, I think that you know, I mean, one question I've asked a lot is right. You know, is like, is what can you know, if if the average person cares about about beavers, you know, what I mean, what can we do to to help them to help them thrive and to and to help facilitate the you know the really important roles they play. I mean, to me, you know, it's actually it's actually another yet another way in which beavers and and roads overlap is that you know is that in many places in, in North America. The, the biggest reason that beavers are, are killed, and, and I mean, so many, you know, we kill hundreds of thousands of beavers a year in, in North America, you know, for, for causing, quote unquote, nuisances, for, for causing trouble. And, you know, the, the, and the, probably the biggest cause of conflict between beavers and people is actually at, at road culverts, you know, mm. the pipes that pass under roads and route streams and wetlands beneath roads. And beavers, are really fond of, of building dams in those culverts because if, you know if you're a beaver, the the roadbed is you know is kind of this dam. This it's like the world's greatest dam, and the culvert is the leak in the dam. So beavers plug up those leaks, and you know the water level rises and the roads wash out, and it's very expensive to maintain. So you know a lot of a lot of towns and counties and states and transportation agencies basically trap out beavers from road culverts every time there's the you know the slightest hint of a problem. You know and, and to me. That's just a, a really unfortunate sort of self-perpetuating mindset where, you know, every time you trap out a family of beavers from a road culvert, you're just putting up a vacancy sign for the next family of beavers, right? The beavers will, will always come back. Mm. Now, you end up in this very, you know, expensive cycle, the treadmill of trapping and recolonization and trapping and recolonization. So a much better solution, in my opinion, in most cases to those kinds of culvert issues is this this kind of contraption called a, a flow device, which is basically it's a pipe and fence system that basically moves water from the upstream side of the culvert to the downstream side through the beaver dam, and uh, you know the beavers can do their thing uh, without without plugging the culvert and, and washing the road. And again, those are called flow devices. And there's a, a website called the Beaver Institute that has lots of information about how these these are applied. So I think that like the the you know some of the best examples of beaver coexistence that I've come across are places where local communities have said, you know, hey, wait a second, you know, we don't we don't want to see our beavers trapped out for both, you know, biological reasons and for economic reasons, uh, you know, because we know these are really important animals that are, you know, that are, are saving us money in lots of ways. And, you know, and we, we know that trapping them is just going to lead to further trapping costs down the road. So there are lots of great examples of, of communities basically banding together to change their their management policies for beavers at road culverts and at other points of potential conflict. So I think that's you know if you're concerned about the beavers you know in your own in your own proverbial backyard in your own community you know the best thing a, a, a citizen could do would be yeah figure out you know who's in charge of maintaining the roads you know and talk to that person about using flow devices rather than rather than trapping you know that's I mean kind of the nice thing about beavers is that they're this it is very local issue. You know, the, the fate of beavers really rests in the hands of individual communities and, and landowners. So there's really an opportunity for, for citizens to communicate with, you know, local policymakers and decision makers uh, about using some of these non-lethal techniques to solve beaver conflicts rather than just reflexively killing beavers every time a problem arises. Hmm. That's definitely good to know, because I feel like policy at a local level is easier to take on than policy at a national level. So seeing as this feels like a community based and local issue, 
we, it definitely will help for us to look to our communities and see how we can get involved. Absolutely. You know, that's, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the great thing about Beavers is that, you know, we're, we're, we're living at this time where we can expect no conservation help whatsoever from the federal government, right? We have this, we have this administration in power that's, that's very hostile, uh, I would say, to, to land conservation and, and wildlife conservation. But, you know, beavers, because they're primarily a local issue, you know, they, they kind of, the beaver management is kind of under the radar. You know, it's, a, it's this thing that we can do in our communities, in our counties, in our states uh, that doesn't really involve, the, you know, this, this very conservation-averse federal administration. So, so it's, it's, a, it's actually a good time to be working on beavers right now because it's, a, it's, a, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an opportunity for leverage that doesn't involve the federal government. Before we go into our final five, I just wanted to mention real quick that if you're relatively new to Green Dreamer and would like my guidance on which episodes to listen to first among the many that are waiting for you, you can head to greendreamer.com slash embark to get my starter guide of our most popular episodes across a wide range of topics, as well as some of my personal favorites. Again, that's greendreamer.com slash embark. If you've been around a while and would like to become a patron of the show to support this work, access extended content and our Green Dreamer network, you can head to greendreamer.com support to learn more. Either way, thank you so much for being here and for your huge heart and dedication. For now, moving on to our final five. Let's power through. What's an uplifting social media account or a publication you follow? Well, I'm not sure it's uplifting, but I'm, I'm a big advocate of High Country News, which is a, a magazine based in Colorado that covers environmental issues throughout the American West. And I, I would say that if you want to be informed about environmental stuff happening in, in, in the West, High Country News is your, your best bet. So mm. I'm a big CN fan. What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? Yeah, I, you know, I try to remember how much progress we've made on wildlife in, in this country. You know, I mean, 100 years ago, you know, you couldn't see a black bear or a turkey or even a white-tailed deer, you know, in, in most parts of, of, uh, of the American Northeast. And now they're basically everywhere. So I just try to remember that, yes, lots of bad stuff is happening. But for many species, the trajectory has actually been pretty, pretty positive. Mm. What's one thing you're working on right now for your health? You know, I got a, I got a dog uh, a little bit less than a year ago. And, mm. and the dog has just been, the dog's name is Kit, which is also the name of a baby beaver. Uh, <laughs> naturally so kit has just been you know the i mean first the the physical health benefits of walking kit you know six or seven miles a day are fantastic but also just the, the mental health benefits of having this this loving wonderful animal uh really fantastic so i'm big into big into kit yes i'm definitely with you on that what's one thing you're working on right now to live more sustainably and regeneratively yeah that's a that's a really a really good question you know i i think that I don't have. I don't really have a, a a great a great answer. I guess besides you know trying to advocate for beavers. I mean, to me, you know, I think that the the, the biggest, you know, I, I think the progress tends to come through political change rather than individual consumer change. So you know, my my resolution for for 2020 is is just to be you know a more active. I mean, certainly I've always voted, but to be a more active participant in the the political process, trying to foster change that way at a larger scale rather than, you know, sort of obsessing over, over my own actions as a consumer, which is maybe self-justifying. But I really do think that, that political and policy change is more significant than, than consumer choice. You touched on this earlier, but what makes you most hopeful for our planet at the moment? 
working on the Beaver book was actually, you know, a, a incredibly a very hope driving experience. And that I, I met all of these fantastic biologists and land managers and farmers and ranchers and concerned citizens who are who've invested their lives in, you know, in, in helping these animals and, and making a difference on our, our landscapes and in our waterways. So just the, the, the fantastic people that I met within the, the beaver believer community really give me a lot of hope for our future. Mm. Well, you're definitely turning me into a beaver believer myself and maybe our listener as well. So we would, of course, love to keep learning from you. Um, where can we go to check out your book and follow and support your work online? Yeah, so my web, my website is uh, is bengoldfarb.com. Uh, and the book is called Eager, and you can you know you can buy that uh, from your local independent bookstore. Uh, I hope is how you choose to to consume it. So I, I'd be uh, very grateful if you if you checked it out. And what final words of wisdom do you have for us as green dreamers? Thank you all so much for the the work the work that you're doing. Thanks for having me on, and and I'm just uh, again you know I'm, I'm so heartened by all of the. The inspiring, passionate, motivated people who are out there trying to trying to heal our planet, and uh, I just don't, you know, don't don't lose hope and and keep keep fighting the good fight. So thank you for all the work that you do. Green Dreamer, thank you so much for tuning in. To support the show, access extended content, and join our Green Dreamer network, you can head to greendreamer.com/support for more information. To receive weekly solutions-driven news around ecological regeneration and intersectional sustainability, you can sign up to our free Green Dreamer Weekly Digest at greendreamer.com. And if you'd like to come say hey to let me know that you're tuning in, you can find me on Instagram at Green Dreamer Podcast and at Kamea Shane. Finally, as we're wrapping up here, just remember, now more than ever, our planet needs your light to thrive. So if you haven't yet, hit subscribe and I will catch you later, Green Dreamer.